You're listening to Mitnick's Monthly Brushstrokes, a podcast on the art of outsmarting, the fun part that sets you apart. I'm Keith Mitnick, author of Don't Eat the Bruises, How to Foil Their Plans to Spoil Your Case. For more information, please visit keithmitnick.com. In this session, I want to talk to you about how to get zero comparative fault in a trip and fall case. And I mean zero, not one percentage fault. And how you can reproduce that result over and over as opposed to catching lightning in a bottle once. We did it recently, Matt Morgan and I trying a case, and I know the strategies we develop work and will work again. Well, it's been about a year since we did the podcast last time, and I like to wait a time frame because a lot of cases get tried, and that means a lot of new strategies. And it's been an active year, and we have some what I think are very hot new strategies to share. And the first one is what I call how to get zero comparative fault in a trip and fall case. And we all know that's a big ask, but I have developed a strategy that I think will in many cases get that result. And in cases that it doesn't, will hold the comparative fault way down. I tried a case last year with my partner, Matt Morgan, and it was a trip and fall case. It was a sidewalk trip on a business area that was privately owned. It wasn't a public uh, sidewalk, but it was open to the public, but it wasn't owned by the city or a county. The biggest problem we had in the case was that the elevation of the sidewalk that was pushed up by tree roots was so high, it was fell smack into the defense's argument of open and obvious. It was probably sticking up four inches in broad daylight. So if you looked at it, you could not miss it. So, of course, as you can imagine going into it, we had a high level of concern that we could outright lose the case over the open and obvious defense. And if we won, that there was a real chance that there would be a large comparative fault attached to our client. So, with that in mind, we put on our thinking caps and came up with a strategy that worked well. Here's how it is. The starting point is during Voidire. And... That is, always ask in Vordire, if you're in a state that permits you to ask the questions, how many of you feel that if someone trips and falls, they must be at least partially at fault for their own injuries, no matter what the evidence shows? And that question should result in a cause challenge. In Florida, there's a case right on point that says, yes, it does. But in any jurisdiction, you at least have a fighting chance if on an element of proof where the defense has the burden of proof, which is comparative fault, the jury's already made up their mind that your client, the defense is won on that point, and it's only a matter of degree. And in all likelihood, they're not going to be able to put that aside. It's part of their beliefs. That should result in a cause challenge. So the starting point is to eliminate those people that would not be open to the strategy that follows. Now let's go into the the strategy itself. And it involves two things. Number one, we had an expert, one of the human factors engineering type experts, that laid out for the jury how it's not just a matter about it being visible or visibility. It's a matter of 
what he calls conspicuity. And it's worth studying up a little on conspicuity. And as explained by the expert, and by the way, even if you don't have an expert, you can explain all of this to the jury as just part of common sense and cross-examining witnesses and use it in closing. And at the end of the day, all it really means is that there are always things as human beings when we're out in the public that are competing for our attention. There is an ongoing nonstop competition for our attention, whether it be a bird flying over, some pretty flowers to the side, a motorcycle racing by, or cars blowing a horn, whatever. So even though something may be visible, you only can protect yourself from it if you happen to have your attention at that particular place at the right moment. And it is human nature that we look around at things. And that's not negligence. That's just being a human being. So circumstances matter. If someone is walking in a park with roots all over sticking up in a rough area, if they're walking in a junkyard, then they're naturally going to be staring at the ground on high alert. And it is unlikely that other things are going to win out in that constant competition for attention. But walking down a sidewalk is not one of those situations. In that situation, you feel safe. There's no reason to have an unusual focus on your feet, which is not the way human beings walk. It's dangerous to walk looking at your feet. So with that explanation to the jury, which I'm being a little longer than needs to be, it can be just simply, it's not about visibility, it's about conspicuity, which means there's a constant competition for attention. And when you're in a situation where you're not, have no reason to be on alert looking down, you can easily miss something that is visible while you're minding your own business doing nothing wrong. The last little part before we get to the real strategy that came out of this is what our expert explained are exciter colors. The reason with that elevation, while they were messing around for years fixing this, they should have at least put red or yellow paint across the riser because it's called an exciter color. It draws your attention, and that area has a better chance of winning the competition for the unsuspecting person's attention. So that's kind of the lead up to what is a strategy that, that I'm excited about, and it's this. We tell the jury, it is the defendant's burden of proof to prove our client was at fault, not us. We have a lot of things to prove. That's not one of them. They have to prove by the greater weight of the evidence, the more persuasive weight. They have to show you what's more likely right than wrong that my client should be held at fault. And that means they have to prove that Miss Jones did something wrong, that Miss Jones acted unreasonably. It is not enough that someone else might have seen it or done something different. It's not enough that Miss Jones could have seen it and done something different. It is only enough for the defense to meet their burden of proof for them to prove to you that my client did something wrong, that my client acted unreasonably while walking down that sidewalk and walking and being open to distractions in nature around you is not doing something unreasonable, period. 
Had my client been walking backwards, that'd be different. Had my client been walking, covering her eyes for some reason, that would be different. Had my client been reading text or sending emails, that would be different. But there is absolutely no evidence of that. She was minding her own business, doing absolutely nothing wrong. They suggest that my client was talking on her cell phone. Well, you've seen the cell phone records, and they don't align with that time. So that's not so. But even though there's a witness that says she was, we don't care. She wasn't, and that's a fact, a scientific fact by the records. But if someone were to believe she was, it would make no difference whatsoever because walking and talking is not unreasonable. If it were, it means everybody at lunch when they walk, if they're walking with someone, better hush. Close your mouth. Don't say a word or else you're acting unreasonably. Don't talk on your phone in, while you're walking because that's no different than talking to whoever's walking alongside with you. From now on in America, we all got to walk in silence would be what the defense suggests, and that's ridiculous. So phone or no phone, walking and talking is not unreasonable. There's nothing whatsoever wrong with it. And the defense has presented you no evidence that our client did anything wrong and certainly didn't act unreasonably that day because in a place where she had every reason to feel safe walking and not staring at her feet, something that absolutely didn't belong there, that was extraordinarily dangerous, caused her to hit it and go down and smash her face on the concrete, and she ended up losing her sense of smell, and with that, most of her sense of taste, along with a bunch of broken bones. So I ask you folks, please bring back the only verdict under the law and under the evidence that is justified, which is zero comparative fault. We talked about in jury selection, some people felt automatically there ought to be some fault. None of those people are sitting on this case. Every single one of you said, absolutely not. You would not do that. And we took your word for it. And we're at peace. No one's going to do that. There were a lot of people called, but only a few selected. And based on your representations and based on the law and based on the facts, there's only one true verdict, zero comparative fault. Now, what was the verdict? It was a seven-figure verdict, and there was zero comparative fault. So I walked away from that thinking, I can't wait for the next podcast because I want to share this one with anybody who'll listen. So, at the end of the day, if you will keep the focus on the defendant's burden of proof when it comes to comparative fault and remind them it is not about whether your client could have done something different or whether your client could have seen it and avoided the tripping hazard. It is about whether your client did something wrong, whether your client acted unreasonably under the circumstances in which there was no reason to be staring at her feet and she was in an environment like folks are all the time where there are other distractions competing for their attention. And if you do that, the jury ought to bring back zero every time out. For more information, please visit keithmitnick.com.